All right, well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are in Isaiah chapter 50. As we continue our series through Isaiah 40 to 55, we come this morning now into the 50s. Chapter 50. We just finished the first major section of this portion of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 49. And now we move into the second and final section. Chapter 50. And uh, I have bad news. The clock on the back wall is broken, so there's no telling when I'll stop. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, have, I have got the time right there. <laughs> Don't be alarmed. Isaiah chapter 50. This is God's holy word for us, his people. I'm going to read verse 4. Beginning with verse 4, I'm going to read into verse 9. And God's Word says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless this time in his word. Father, we come before you humbly. We confess our need for you. We confess that too often our eyes are shut, our ears closed, our hearts hard. And we ask that you would open up our eyes and our ears and open up our hearts, soften our hard hearts, we pray, so that we can heed what your word says. Open up this passage to us. Show us something of yourself, something of your glorious Son, Give us your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth this morning. Write this truth upon our hearts as it's proclaimed. Apply it to each of us according to our need and our situation this morning. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we lift you up through the preaching and hearing and receiving of your word. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. It's wonderful to be back in the in the sanctuary uh, this week after a time in the in the fall. Excuse me, after a time in through the summer in the fellowship hall. Uh, those chairs weren't the most comfortable. Uh, so here we get to come back into these nice pews. We get to enjoy our beautiful sanctuary together. And this weekend it's <clears throat> Labor Day weekend, a federal holiday where the labor force is honored by the government with a day off in recognition of their dedication to their work and their industrial and economic contributions to the country. That's the the purpose behind Labor Day. Uh, But Labor Day hasn't always existed. It had to start somewhere. Everything had to start somewhere. Uh, You realize the way things are now is not the way things have always been. I know the generation that's coming up now probably thinks that these grow on trees. That uh, that's just the way things are. That's just we've always had the internet. We've always had all these wonderful technological marvels. Um, but no, we had everything had to start somewhere. These things don't grow in nature. Labor Day is the same. Someone had to come up with the idea of Labor Day. Uh, somebody had to campaign for it before it became a federal holiday. Somebody had to hope that politicians would go along with it and. 
recognize it. Uh, so when did Labor Day start? I just got curious this, uh, this week as I was thinking about this sermon. When did Labor Day start? So I, I did some Googling. Labor Day was first celebrated in the United States by some labor unions in New York City in September 1882. Just private, private citizens and their labor unions did it. It wasn't political. It was just these people did it on, on their own, 1882. In 1887, Oregon was the first state to make it a state holiday. By 1894, 30 different states had made it a state holiday. And so on June 28th, 1894, President Grover Cleveland signed a congressional bill making Labor Day an official federal holiday in the United States. For history buffs, that's kind of, that's, that's neat, right? Labor Day had a beginning in this country. And Labor Day is a day of rest. That's what it's supposed to be. Labor Day is a day of rest where you cease from your labor. It's a federally mandated day off from work for many American workers. But America did not invent the concept of Labor Day. The people of God have been observing a Labor Day, a day of rest, every seven days from the very beginning. Uh, Labor Day is actually God's idea. In the Ten Commandments, God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, on that day, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Exodus 28 to 11. Israel is to rest one day in seven because that's what God did in the first week, the week of creation. God observed the first Labor Day and it was Him resting from the work of creation. And in imitation of God, he gives us that Sabbath day of rest. On the Sabbath, God's people do as Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. In other words, as Hebrews chapter 4 explains, the Sabbath is a reminder that we must cease from our own labors, from our own good works, and rest by faith in the works of that God has done for us. In our passage this morning, the Word of God directs us prophetically to consider the works that God has done for us in the person of Jesus, the promised Messiah. Last week, we learned to sing the tune of the second servant song. Remember, in Isaiah 40 to 55, there are four servant songs. The first was in 42. The second one we looked at last week in chapter 49. We learn to sing the tune of this second servant song. And this week we come to the third of the four songs in this section of Isaiah. And throughout this sermon series, we have followed Isaiah as he sought to reveal to Israel just who their God really is. That is the main point of the section, and it's the main point of this sermon series. We need to get to know our God again. We need to be reminded who God is. We need to get back to basics, as it were, and have our eyes opened afresh to who this great God really and truly is. And in light of knowing God Isaiah wanted the people of Israel to discover who they really are. When we know who he is and we see him truly, we then in that light can see who we really are and we can get our relationship with God right. But until we look to him first and see who he really is, we have our back turned to him. It's like St. Augustine used this illustration of when you're facing, when you're facing the sun, you're facing the light. But when you turn your back, 
The light is at your back and all you see is the dark shadow you cast in front of you. You can't see the light of God and all you see is your shadow. And if you think you're just a shadow, you don't know who you are. You'll be a shadow of your real self if you don't look to God first. But we learn when we first look to God, we have some problems, right? We're like Isaiah who looked at God in Isaiah 6 and we see holy, holy, holy is the Lord on his throne and we are unclean and defiled and we are a people of unclean lips and we need to be changed and we need to be rescued. But then we can figure out who the rescuer is. And you see how Isaiah paints this picture. We see God in his holiness and his glory. We see ourselves in our sin and our misery. And then we can figure out, oh, now we can see God in his glorious saving might for us not against us. We can learn to know His mercy. But we don't know what His mercy really is till we see how sinful we are. And we don't know how sinful we are till we see how holy He is. So you got to start with God. you got to start with God and see everything in His light. That's what Isaiah has been doing for us in 40 to 55. That's what this series has been about. Each chapter, getting to know more about God, more of who He is, more of His glory more of His salvation, more of who we are, more of our desperation, more of our need. That's where we've been going. We continue with chapter 50. As we come near to the end of this great section of Scripture, Isaiah begins to intensify his focus on the one that God has promised to send in order to accomplish this great deliverance for his people. This deliverer is called the servant And this servant is the Messiah. And it's only in the New Testament, when the Messiah Jesus has finally arrived, that we see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies in full detail. So here's the pattern of chapter 50. It goes like this. Number one, Israel disobeys terribly. Two, the Messianic servant obeys perfectly. And so, three, Israel should repent and obey faithfully. Israel begins by disobeying terribly. The Messiah comes and obeys perfectly, and therefore, we should begin to obey that Messiah faithfully. That's the pattern of chapter 15. As we follow the pattern and look at the prophecy of the Messiah in this third servant song, We will rely on the New Testament to help us understand what Isaiah's message to Israel then is saying to us today. So let's begin. Look with me, first of all, at verses 1 through 3. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Let's stop right there. What's going on in verse 1? God divorced Israel. I once heard um, Mark Lowry right? Gaither vocal band, Mark Lowry. Mark Lowry once said, God couldn't be the pastor of a Baptist church because he's been divorced. (laughs) God divorced Israel. He gave her a certificate of divorce and he sent her away. Why did he do that? Well, actually, when did he do that? He did it when Israel was exiled to Babylon. Israel disobeyed, 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 unfaithful, unfaithful, unfaithful to God, breaking covenant left and right. And so what does he do? He says, okay, the curses of the covenant are finally going to fall, and we're through. Babylon is permitted to come in. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They exile the people, and Israel has been sent away. That was the divorce. And they were exiled slash divorced because of their disobedience. 
It says, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. And that's Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel and referring to Jerusalem as their mother. Jerusalem, Israel, you have been divorced and banished. And then look at verse 2. Why, God says, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? When God came calling on Israel to obey and follow Him and love Him and be His faithful people, no one listened. No one answered. They all turned aside. But then, even in the face of their rebellion, in the face of their sin, in the midst of their exile, Isaiah comes with this message of hope. Look at the rest of verse 2. Why, when I came, did no one answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Is my hand so short that it can't redeem you, Israel? Have I no power to deliver you? Have I no power to deliver you? God reassures Israel that they are not beyond His saving reach. Even now, hear the gospel in that. Even now, I've sent you away, but I can take you back and I'm willing to take you back. As unfaithful as you've proven, I even now, my hand is not too short that it can't reach you all the way in exile, all the way in Babylon. And bring you back. And my power isn't so meager that it isn't able to rip open the iron cage of exile that Babylon has you in and get you out of there. I can still save. I can still do it. I can still bring you back to me. Why will no one listen? Why is no one answering when I call? Am I unable to save you? He says. And then he goes off on how powerful he really is. He says, the rest of verse 2 into verse 3, Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. That's Exodus, right? At my rebuke I'll split Red Seas. I'll split Jordan Rivers. I can make a way through the sea. At my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. I'm the one who's in charge of night and day. I am the one who brings about the cycles of the clock and the cycles of the seasons. I am almighty over heaven and earth. Do you think I can't save you from exile in Babylon? You think Babylon is as strong as some star in the sky? I command the stars and they say, yes, Lord. What is your will for me? I can, command ex- I can command Babylon. I can get you out of exile. I can save you. He reminds them of his power over all things. Now, that's Isaiah's message to them in the first three verses. What does the New Testament do with this idea? How does the New Testament fill in what this means for us? It's this. Christian sin separates us from God. And it spoils our relationship with Him. Like the turmoil of a failed marriage that leads to a nasty divorce and a bitter separation. So our sins put us at odds with God. Our unfaithfulness, our rebellion, our covenant breaking, our refusal to listen. Our stiff necks and hard hearts create all of this bitterness And resentment and malevolence and hurt and pain like the crumbling of a marriage. That's what our sins do. And therefore we need to be reconciled to God. We need reconciliation in our relationship. I like to think about the fall in Genesis chapter 3 like this. We talk about the fall into sin. It was also a falling out between man and God. It was the end of our relationship with Him. Actually, it was the transformation of our relationship with Him because we still have a relationship with God even when we're sinful and lost, and it's a bad one. It's the relationship of enemies, not friends. 
And so the fall in the garden was a falling out where we took the side of the serpent and declared war on God. And that falling out, the roots of that is in every human heart. And it's why we start out as sinners from the womb. We don't start out pure, good, innocent little angel babies and then grow into sinners. We start out lost. The roots of the fall are in us. The enmity that the fall creates between man and God is still with us. And we need reconciliation. We need someone to come and heal this broken relationship. We need someone to come and get all this junk that's between me and God out of the way so we can be back in a right standing and a good relationship and be friends and not enemies. That's what we need. But just as no one in Israel listened to God when He called, so also before we're born again, we're dead in sin. We're incapable of responding obediently to God. And we're incapable because our sinful hearts want nothing to do with bowing the knee to Jesus. It's not that our knees can't bend. It's that our hearts refuse to bend. And we cannot submit to God because it is not what we want. What we want is everything else. And not God. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. This is our condition. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Just think of all the different religious people. And if they're lost, all that religion is not seeking God. It might be seeking the gifts of God. It might be seeking the privileges that come with association with that church or that religion. But they're not looking for God, Paul says. No one in this lost condition is actually seeking God to be with God, but they're seeking God to get what God has to give. They want the gift, not the giver. So even our most respectable religious lifestyles, religious affiliations and commitments, even those can be shot through with hypocrisy if the thing we're after isn't fellowship with our reconciled God. But just, what can you give me, God? What blessing can I take away from this? And when I get the blessing, I have what I want, and I don't need you anymore. I'll call you again when I have another problem. The next time I go through something, I'll I'll say a prayer, and we can reconnect. Until then, I got what I'm looking for. That's, that's That's us. That's the human heart before we're born again. And so we... Left to ourselves, always choose sin, and we always reject God, and we always refuse the gospel. And so we have to be reassured too, don't we? We need to be reassured like Israel in exile that God is mighty to save and that he's able to rescue us from our exile and sin and death. We need that word of reassurance. And God gives it to us in verse 3. He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness, And I make sackcloth their covering. In the ancient world, in the Old Testament, when people are repenting, when they're expressing their sorrow for sin, when they're grieving, they'll put on sackcloth and ashes as a way of showing outwardly their grief on the inside. And God says, I can make the heavens put on sackcloth. And I can make you put it on too. If I can make the heavens repent you won't be any problem. I can make the Milky Way galaxy repent, metaphorically, right? If I can make stars and planets and galaxies bow the knee to me, your rebellion, it's bad, but I can handle it. We need that word of reassurance. How is God going to do this? That's the next question. How's God going to do this? 
Am I too too weak that I can't save you? Is my arm too short that I can't rescue you? No, I can make even the heavens put on sackcloth. I can bring you to repentance. How's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? That's the second point this morning. The answer is the servant, the Messiah. This is verses 4 through 9. Verse, the point one was we disobey God. And now point two, Jesus obeys for us. Jesus obeys for us. The rest of the chapter is connected to this idea that God is able to save. Isaiah points to the one who will come in the saving might of the Lord to reconcile God's divorced, disobedient people. And the way God accomplishes our reconciliation, our salvation, is by sending His obedient servant to obey for you in your place. To give God the obedience you should have but couldn't and wouldn't. He comes to supply what you never could. He comes to do for you what only He can do. That's the role of the obedient servant. In fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 50, God sends his servant, Jesus the Messiah, and Jesus saves us by offering God the obedience that we have failed to give. And he offers this obedience in two ways. Two ways, and here's the heart of this sermon. Two ways that God, that Jesus offers the obedience that we failed to give. He does it first through his active obedience. And second, he does it through his passive obedience. These are terms that theologians use to describe the work of Jesus for us. His active and his passive obedience. Now let's look at these one at a time. First, his active obedience. What does this mean? What are we talking about? Active obedience. The active obedience of Christ is all that Jesus does in his earthly life to keep the law of God perfectly. All those thou shalts and thou shalt nots throughout the Bible, Jesus comes and he obeys them perfectly. That's his active obedience. Active obedience consists of all that sinless righteousness that Jesus himself performs. All that sinless obedience to the will of God and the word of God and the law of God. All that perfect faithfulness and obedience to God. All that righteousness, sinless, perfect, spotless that Jesus himself performs. That's his active obedience. And Isaiah describes this active obedience for us when he points us to the servant in verses 4 and 5. It says... The Lord God has given me, this is the servant talking, this is the Messiah, this is Jesus, Old Testament Jesus, talking to himself through Isaiah the prophet. The Lord God has given me, the Messiah, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who were taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Jesus preaches and teaches and serves his people in his public ministry because he listens perfectly to the Father. And then he performs All that the Father has given him to do. I love this picture of Jesus. And you just think about Jesus fulfilling this in his own earthly life. Just look what he does. He says, morning by morning, he awakens. God wakes me up and he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God opens my ear. Morning by morning, Jesus gets up and he dwells with God. Jesus had a morning routine. He had a devotional life, a quiet time. He had time alone with God. He got up in the morning and he wanted to dwell with God. He just wanted to be with his Father. He said, every morning God wakes me up 
And he opens my ears to listen to everything he wants me to do. And that's all I'm, con- I'm concerned with during the day. What is your will for me, O oh God? What do you want me to do today? Wake me up. He said, and he, he said, he gives me the tongue of those who were taught. He drank in the wisdom of the scriptures. He drank in the knowledge of God. And he learned from scripture how to speak in public and how to preach and how to teach. And he just, where did it come from? Where did he get all this? Just because he's God and he just didn't have to do anything? Well, he's God, so of course he knew everything and he could just do miracles and he's just walking on water like it's nothing. Well, yeah, he's God, but he's also human. Fully human. And that means he he needed the Holy Spirit. The human Jesus was not an atheist. The human Jesus had a God. That he loved with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength. His human heart, soul, mind and strength. He loved and worshipped and served and relied upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus had a life with God. And that's where he got all this amazing wisdom and power. Yes, he was God. But he also lived a human life. And in that human life, he needed a relationship with God. One of perfect fellowship and obedience. And out of that perfect harmony with God came his sinless righteousness. His active obedience. Where he never once sinned. And then he says, I was not rebellious. The Lord God has opened my ear. Meaning, the Lord gets me to listen to him. He opens my ear to hear all he has to say, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn my back on him. He never resisted the will of his Father. He never turned away from perfectly obeying. That's his active obedience. What's his passive obedience? Passive obedience is this. If active obedience of Christ is everything that Jesus does then the passive obedience of Christ is everything that is done to Jesus. What do I mean? Well, don't think here that passive means not engaged, <laughs> laid back, disinterested, lacking in energy or something like that. It's not passive in that sense. It's passive in the old sense of the term, a sense we don't really use anymore. The word passive here is related to the word passion, as in the passion of the Christ. If you saw that movie, it wasn't about, you know, what is Jesus really passionate about? What are his desires? What does he want to do? What's his ambitions and his goals and his hopes and his dreams? What is he passionate about? That's not what that movie was. And if you thought that's what it was, you were very, very disturbed when you when you went to see it. Because it's not about his goals and his dreams. It was about his suffering. Passion in that old sense comes from Latin, talking about undergoing suffering. And so the passive obedience of Jesus is about what he undergoes in obedience to God. It means Jesus yielded himself to the will of God and he underwent the suffering that God called him to suffer. God didn't just call him to do the law and keep the law and be obedient in that active way, but also to go to the cross. And that's what passive obedience refers to. His willingness, his yieldedness to go to the cross, to endure all the suffering that led up to it, culminating in his crucifixion. Jesus yielded himself to the will of God perfectly in obedient suffering. Isaiah refers to this passive obedience of the servant in verses 6 and 7. We just got through seeing his, um, his active obedience, right? Verses 5 into verse 6. Actually, verse, verse 7. Oh, yeah, verses 6 and 7. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, this passage is referred to a couple of times in the Gospels. The fulfillment of verse 6 is alluded to in those trial scenes in the Gospels, right before Jesus goes to be crucified. And the fulfillment of verse 7, let's look at verse 7. He says, but the Lord God helps me 
Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. That verse is fulfilled in Luke 9.51, where Jesus resolves to head towards Jerusalem to take on the cross. He says, he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that his time was drawing near. And Paul summarizes the active and the passive obedience of Jesus in one verse in Philippians 2.8. He says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became obedient even unto death. There's his active and his passive obedience all rolled up into one verse, Philippians 2.8. So now, now that we know what active and passive obedience is, and we see it prophesied in Isaiah 50, how in the world does that help you? How does that save us? Well, first of all, in verses 8 and 9, it saved Jesus. First and foremost, all that obedience, active and passive, it saved Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. You hear what's going on there? Jesus is vindicated by God. It says, he who vindicates me is near. In the Gospels, you know when that happens? When that tomb bursts open and Jesus comes out victorious. Jesus is vindicated by God when he's raised from the dead. Because God has vindicated or justified Jesus, no one can declare him guilty. The judge has pronounced in his favor, you are righteous. They condemned you as a criminal. They condemned you as a blasphemer. They put you to death as a, as a false prophet, as a sinner. And I say, baloney. It's all wrong, overruled. Get up out of that grave. They cannot declare you guilty because I, the God of heaven, say you are righteous in your full and perfect obedience. And therefore, death has no right to hold you, my son. Rise up. Rise up. And Jesus comes walking out of that tomb with a title to heaven. And all of his accusers are put to shame. Who will declare me guilty? The Lord God helps me. That's Jesus. That's the servant prophesying his resurrection right there through Isaiah the prophet. Because God has raised up Jesus and declared him righteous, death has no more claim on him. Everyone else may pass away, but Jesus lives forever. They will wear out like a garment, verse 9. The moth will eat them up. Not me. Not me. I'm raised from the dead. Jesus lives forever. So this is what his obedience does for him. It saves him from the condemnation and the lies and the false trials and the accusations of the world. And even the cords of death have to let him go. They have to let him pass. The gates of Hades cannot prevail against the church because it could not prevail against the Lord of the church who burst its doors wide open, who says in Revelation, I have the keys of death and hell and the grave. I'll decide who lives and dies. Jesus earned salvation by his active and his passive obedience. And God justified him and raised him from the dead. Why? So that Jesus can share his resurrection and his justification with you. Your salvation only comes by participating in his salvation. That participation 
Jesus is righteous. Jesus has been raised. God is on his side. And you participate in that. The only way you do that is when you are united to him by faith. It's called union with Christ. When you come into union with him, you participate in all that he has accomplished for you. Paul talks about this over and over in the New Testament. He uses this language of in Christ, in Christ. It's everywhere in Paul's letters, in Christ, in Christ. He means in union with Jesus, by faith, united to him. And when you have union with Christ, you're in Christ by faith. And when you're in Christ, everything he has becomes yours. It's like a marriage. Everything the man owns and everything the woman owns, it's now their property, 100% both of theirs. You get everything he has, and he gets everything you have. And that's great news, because all you have is sin. <laughs> and all he has is righteousness and mercy and grace and salvation. And so that's the best deal in the world. He gets all your sin, where he banished it and killed it where he killed death itself on the cross and in the tomb and left it all behind beneath that stone. And you get all of his perfect, active, and passive obedience counted for you. And that's the only way we're getting reconciled with God is if we're in Christ, united to him by faith. All his righteousness and his active obedience is given to you as a free gift by God. Grace alone, through faith alone. The righteousness of Christ is given to you so that His justification becomes your justification. Give you one verse, Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam in the garden, as by one man's disobedience, the many, that's us, were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. His obedience makes you righteous. That's Paul's gospel. His obedience makes you righteous. His death takes away your sin and his obedience becomes your righteousness. That's his gospel. All his righteousness in his Active obedience becomes your active obedience. All his righteousness in his passive obedience on the cross is given to you as a free gift by faith alone as well. So that his suffering becomes your suffering. His death becomes your death. You get all his righteousness and he takes all your sin. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ also suffered passive obedience once, one time only, didn't take two, three, four, he got it right the first time. One act of suffering in his, in his passive obedience was enough. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Reconciliation. No more divorce, no more separation, full reconciliation, full restoration. That's what Jesus the suffering servant was meant to do. The obedient servant in this third servant song was meant to do. And Isaiah's just given you a little prophetic foretaste of what it's going to be like. Because the whole obedience of Christ is imputed to you by grace alone through faith alone, his passive obedience covers your sins with his blood and his active obedience supplies all the righteousness you need to stand perfectly just before God. Your whole justification and your whole forgiveness, all of it, is in Christ alone. And that's why He alone is your whole Savior. You can't trust in Him a little bit to do part of it. You can't rely on yourself a little bit to do some of it. It's Christ, it's the whole Christ, or none at all. He will not share the glory of His salvation with any other. The only thing, Christian, the only thing you bring to the table in salvation is the need for it. That's all you have to bring. And He gives you everything. 
because Christ's whole life of obedience becomes yours. That means at the end, his resurrection becomes yours too. Because if he's perfectly righteous and death had no right to hold him, and if he gives you his perfect righteousness, death has no right to hold you either. And that's why we have the promise that we're getting up out of those tombs, getting up out of those graves at the second coming when he vindicates all of us who are united to him in union with him in Christ by faith alone. Because his whole life of obedience becomes yours, so does his resurrection. Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. His righteousness is your righteousness. His death is your death. His resurrection will be your resurrection. This is how the obedient servant saves you. And that's why he gets all the glory. There's just one last thing to say in response to that. Jesus obeys for us. And in response, we are called to obey like him. Now that we're saved, what do we do? Do we sit back and do nothing? No, we fear God and we obey Jesus. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Fear the Lord and obey his servant, father and son. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. We were walking in darkness. God sends the light of salvation in Christ. Chapter 49, verse 6. And we put our trust in Christ and rely fully on the mercy of God to save us. But then we must begin to live a new life. We must begin to live the life of Christ. We must begin to walk in his light. We must walk in the fear of the Lord and walk in obedience to Christ. We must begin to live a Christian life. And those who refuse to live a Christian life, those who profess to believe but do not fear the Lord and have not truly repented and do not walk in his light, they prove themselves to be hypocrites. Last verse of the chapter, verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, go ahead, walk in the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. You're walking in darkness. Here's the light of Christ. Walk in it. Don't reject the light of Christ and try to light your own torch and walk by your own light. Do it your way and do what's right in your own eyes. But walk in the light of Christ. If you refuse to walk in that light and try to walk in your own, Jesus threatens eternal torment. We must never so emphasize grace that we forget that there is a narrow road that Jesus expects us to walk. Your obedience does not save you, but that doesn't mean obedience is optional. So, on this Sabbath day and this Labor Day weekend, Remember to be still and know that He is God. Learn to cease from your own good works as a means of salvation. Stop trying to turn your obedience into a ladder that enables you to climb up to heaven on your own. Look away from yourself and look unto Jesus, the Messiah, the servant, who wins your whole salvation by His obedience in your behalf. Cease from your own works and learn to rest in the works of Christ, trusting in his active and passive obedience for you. In him you are reconciled to God, and in him you will find both the desire and the power to walk 
in the light as he is in the light all the way to his glorious kingdom at the end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful word you give us. Thank you for the gospel of your servant son who has done all that we need to be reconciled to you. We thank you for his life of perfect obedience and faithfulness to you. And we thank you for his suffering in our place upon the cross, taking the curse for us. And I pray that we would indeed learn how to rest from our works, to realize that we do not have to run on a treadmill of good works to try and work up enough worth, merit, to have a title to spend eternity with you. It's not, a, it's not a thing to be earned, a wage to be worked for. It is a gift to be humbly and gratefully received and to be treasured. And so by faith today and by grace today, I pray that all of us would indeed receive the whole Christ for our whole salvation and look totally away from ourselves to Him to be still and know that You are God. And then to so love and so appreciate and so treasure this gift of Christ that we would then turn around and in the fear of the Lord and in obedience to His voice, we would wake up morning by morning and say, the Son of God surrendered all for me. How can I surrender all for Thee? Show me how to walk in Your light today to bring honor and glory to You and to love and serve our neighbor. Not to earn heaven, that's already ours through Christ alone, but just simply to honor God, to bring Him glory, and to love others faithfully. Help us to figure out in our own daily walks how to walk that tightrope of running in full-hearted obedience without falling into the trap of trusting that obedience to save us. Put our nose in our Bibles and teach us how to absorb your scriptures and to live them out as we look to Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.